I'm now in my 30th year working to restore nature in forests and on farms, mostly across the north of England. 30 years ago I left the city and my old job behind. I hung up my suit and tie and went off to plant trees. It's a decision I've never regretted. I'm Pete Leeson. Welcome to Series 2 of Tree Amble Podcast. This is a podcast about people and farming and trees and nature and how we could all do much better. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed series one. Series two, very similar. We're going to talk to lots of people in the landscape and find out what they're up to. This first one is about Alan Crawford. Alan is an amazing guy. He knows so much about woodlands, but he's also, he's keen to talk about his mental well-being. We get pretty close to the grain in this one, talking about how we use our landscape to make ourselves feel better. Um, Alan's great to talk to about this um, and for me this is quite an emotional conversation. I hope you get lots out of this one. Good morning Alan. Morning Pete. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You've done some street theatre haven't you? I've done a little yeah. And you're a bit of a storyteller. Yes, I have that in my locker, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, always around trees and woods. Um, yeah. I sort of feel like if you are going to be doing any writing or any storytelling, then it should be something that comes from the heart and something that you've got an intrinsic interest in. Yeah. And uh, trees and woods are my thing. That's so what you do. That makes sense for me if I was ever going to write or to, to tell stories, then it would have to be around, around that kind of subject, really. Because you're very definitely a man of the woods, aren't you? Yeah, I've, I've always had a, a thing for, for trees and woods, and I think yeah, what drew me to trees and woods in the first place is an emotional and aesthetic thing. So I now understand something about ecology and the dynamism of woodlands and some of the science behind it, and sufficient enough to, to work in the field. Yeah. But, um, the main reason I was drawn to it is just that I love the shape and the form and the colour and the, so the aesthetic of the place yeah. um, the emotional feeling when you're there. Um, I'm not the best first thing in the morning. so uh, <laughs> we're, we're meeting fairly early. <laughs> so the, if you were to hang out in my company, you'd be better to hang out in my company after I've been in the woods for a couple of hours than right. before I've been in okay. the woods for a couple of hours. Is that uh, because your your mental state improves? Yeah, or? absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a place like... So, so often folk have said to me that I like to escape to the woods, and I don't see it that way. Yeah. I feel like it's a connect. It's not yeah. an escape. It's, it's actually where life is at its most real. Yeah. So... And because of that, and that sense of perspective that you get from being in the woods and just noticing just the simple and beautiful components of the woodland, um, then everything else gets put in perspective. And right. you know, all the, any other trials and tribulations you have in 
know, our predominantly human world kind of disappear a little bit. Um, everything kind of makes sense, and would yeah. even hard, even harsh things. Yeah. So if you're going through difficult things, times yourself, then I think to be in the place so you know, woods are dynamic. They have life and they have death, but that's part of what yeah. what life is. What that they, is. they come yeah. to come together. But but in the woods, it's all it makes sense because you see the cycling of things. Yeah. You see the, f the fresh new life coming up. Um, so yeah, it's. I, def I mean. I, there's a lot of talk, I guess, nowadays about sort of mental health benefits of, mm. of being in, in nature. Um, I think that's something that intuitively I've understood kind of all my days, really. Mm. Um, I, think, I think that's... I'm, I'm in that same space too. You know, I, I started off my career working in London, you know, and not really understanding why I was depressed the whole time. But it, was, it just wasn't the place for me. Yeah. Whereas I sit with you this morning and we're up in the Cairngorms. I mean, we just a moment, and we'll talk about that a bit later on, maybe. But this just feels right. Yeah. It feels home. Yeah. Mentally and physically home, doesn't it? And I think, you know, it, it might not be that everybody needs that. Yeah. I think people need something that they can be immersed in at some points. So that, because when you're immersed in, in something, you're present. And when you're present, you don't have all that other baggage with you yeah. for that time. So for some people it'll be music, for uh, for other people it might be art, for, you know, it could be all manner of different things, yeah. but whatever it is, if, if when you're doing it, you're properly engaged in it, then there's a release from kind of the spinning wheels inside yeah. your head. So. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and for me it's, have, it's a natural yeah. world. We all have spinning wheels, don't yeah, we? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. 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 <laughs> Well, I didn't sleep very well last night, and, and, and mainly because I was, I was thinking, I haven't done this, I haven't done that, I haven't ticked off this, I haven't ticked off that. None of them would end the world if I hadn't done them, yeah. but they're all sat there waiting to be done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and they can cause you some angst. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so this is your happy place. Yeah, and I, I mean, why, why I thought it would be nice to do this chat here really is... Um, yeah, any kind of natural woodland for me, and a place where natural processes are driving the evolution of that. Yeah. Uh, so there aren't many woods in the UK that have that. Um, the hand of human beings is pretty present in most woods, often being quite heavily managed. And mm. there's a place for that, but uh, where natural processes are driving the evolution of a particular space, then for me that's. Yeah, the best. Is that because of a feel? I mean, I know you, you, your knowledge about woodlands is intense, but is that also it's a, it's a knowledge that you know this is a good place, but also you feel it too. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So it's an emotional response and a and an academic response. Yeah, and I'd yeah. say the the academic response is a learned thing. Yeah. But it's the emotional response that's the more meaningful. That's thing. innate. Yeah. That's, yeah. So yeah, I. And now I'm more, much more comfortable about speaking about that, actually. Yeah. Previously, I knew that was why I liked being in woodland. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I would justify the value of woodlands on the basis of biodiversity or various other things of, of the science that I understood. Yeah. Um, and that science is true, and bi yeah. the benefits for biodiversity are absolute. You know, so, um, but now we're men, a bit slightly older men, we, you know, we're less shy about saying, yeah. well, actually, yeah. you know. Absolutely, I'm just a... 
Why not? Why not? Yeah, why not? Why not? Because we've all been through shit times, yeah, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. And actually, <laughs> so and it needs to be talked about. Otherwise, it, it it's otherwise it does go under the carpet. And 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 I think it, like if 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 some of us articulate that, it makes it other easier for other yeah. people to also articulate yeah. that, or to at least if they hear it, to feel comfortable within themselves that that's mm-hmm. how they, they feel, or that's what these places do for mm-hmm. them. So. Yeah, and, and, and why this place in particular is so we're in the um, western side of the Cairngorms just now and the the Cairngorms for to me feels like it has some of the best and worst examples of land management. Right, okay. So yeah. we've got some intact uh, ancient woodland here that's got some degree of scale. So ancient woodland is wood, we know it has been here since at least 1600. So in Scotland they would say from at least uh, 1750 because okay. the map sources are different. Okay. Right. Um, but the thinking would be that it's probably been here, you know, genuine ancient woodland would be stuff that's been... Kind of post ice age. Yeah. Yeah. Or evolved, come but from we know that. We know that the mapping... Yes, yes. So, so it, was it Wade that came up here with his military so, maps? So General Roy... Roy. So, so there's okay. a Wade military roads, but General Roy was the guy that did the okay. 1750s military maps. Okay. And then the, the other map source that we would use is the 1860s first edition Ordnance okay. Survey. And it was, it's, so the, the, the Roy maps are an impressionistic thing, they're a kind of colour wash. Uh, and they were looking for, for woodlands that had strategic importance, so some bits of woodlands wouldn't have been recorded on that, so it's not absolutely accurate okay. and it's not cartographically accurate, yeah. but it gives a pretty good idea of where okay. the majority of those woodlands are, but some of the ecologically important woodlands, bits of scrub woodlands, or bits of uh, juniper wood, for example, up here in Cairngorms or Hawthorne and other parts of the country, they, they might not have been mapped because they weren't considered important. Because they weren't, st- you couldn't cut them down for any timber. Yeah, yeah. or you, you couldn't, couldn't build ships out of them. Or you couldn't ha- hide in them. Or, right, okay. you know, they, they, yeah. they, they wouldn't give you shelter or protection. Or, so, yeah, they didn't have a utilitarian use, yeah. really. Okay. Um, whereas the first editions, uh, Ordnance Survey maps, they're absolutely phenomenal resource. They're, they're yeah, accurate so down 18, to... That's yeah. the 1860 one. Yeah, so they're accurate down to individual trees. Right. And that's a really useful resource looking at changes you can look at that and you can overlay an aerial photograph of current day and you can see whether that woodland still persists or hasn't or has disappeared and you know in scotland as a result of a high deer numbers extraordinary high deer numbers um since sort of victorian times so at least 150 maybe 200 years have been very little regeneration Mm -hmm. so most of the woods that we have that remain of our ancient woodlands which we've got less than one percent of scotland's ancient semi-natural woodland and at one point it would have been 70, 80% or something, so that's a pretty catastrophic loss. Mm. Uh, and, and a lot of that woodland's quite fragmented, it's not yeah. in good nicks, it's been he- heavily browsed, a lot of it's got uh, invasives, etc., etc. So when you look at the aerial photo uh, of current things, you can see whether that woodland's expanded or, 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 dis- or retracted. Um, and the chances are that most of the trees that are remained will be ancient and veteran trees, mm. at least mature trees and probably ancient or veteran trees, right. because there's been no recruitment right. you know, for 200 years, apart from in places where there's been a concerted effort to make sure that that happens. So many of those sites have been done through deer fencing, so mm-hmm. to exclude the mm-hmm. browsing mouths. Uh, and some, like where we are just now, have been done through re- reduction in deer numbers. Okay. And 
that means that you don't have this artificial edge. You know, if you have a, a fenced off area, you have yeah, yeah. this really sharp divide, yeah. and it, it doesn't make it's sense. Unnatural. Yeah. Whereas here you see but patterning. It, it works within. at one point. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Day, so yeah. It's first aid. That's why yeah. I, I see yeah. it as first aid, yeah. and it's necessary because in, in, in many places you don't have control over the catchment. So yeah. the person that wants to see the, the woods improve in their health and resilience, they're probably your, your best option is to fence it. Mm. But in an ideal world, you would have deer as part of the they're a woodland animal, they should be part of the, the ecosystem. Lower levels yeah, than got yeah, yeah, significantly lower yeah. levels than they've got now. And so part of that, so, sorry, part of that comes from they're not being predators, so yeah. they don't have bear or wolf or lynx, mm. but part of it comes from a cultural thing that hey, a lot of the land in Scotland is owned by large estates and there's a shooting culture in that, so they often will feed the deer in the winter so that when yeah. folk come to go shooting, they get an easy kill. So the numbers are high for a couple of different reasons. Oh, yeah. um, so, yeah. And there's a lot of politics around that. Oh, of course there is. And maybe yeah. we come back to that later. Yeah, yeah. But we've, we've skirted around the issue of where we are and what it looks like the last 15 minutes. So we are actually, well, describe it, we're sat under a granny pine, would you call this yeah, a granny pine? Yeah, yeah. So there's a... What I particularly love about this place is the quite a lot of our, our woods have um, a relatively s single aged and they you have like tall trees and you have ground flora but you don't have much in the way of the filling, you know, the shrub layer. <coughs> the structure is like yeah, structure, would, yeah, would call it, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So here we have ancient trees, like yep. the one behind us, so a granny pine. Um, so that's uh, gonna be old much older than your seventeen fifty map, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean the, the oldest recorded pines are sort of high 500s, 560, something like that, I right. think. Um, and they can stand live for that time, yes. but they can also stand dead yes. for that yeah. time. Yeah, for, for hundreds of years. They won't, the, the decaying wood won't last as long as oak, for example. It's right. not, it, it will decay quicker, but it will be hundreds of years, for yeah. it, potentially, if it's, if it's in a decent size. Um, so, yeah, but here we've got a lot of the pine woods, are, particularly in the Cairngorms, are very pine-dominated. Yeah. But this little bit that we're in here, and part of the reason I really love it is um, because you have, it feels like as full an expression of what a pine wood could be. Yeah. So you have all of the, the types of species you, that you would expect to have. So you've got pines of various different ages from ancient and veteran trees, mature trees, young, young babas, you know. And they, but there's also lots of, there's silver birch and downy birch, there's alder, there's juniper, uh, there's aspen. Uh, pretty bow and holly, you know, pretty much everything that you might expect to find potentially in, 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 a, in, a, in an upland pine wood yeah. is present here. And the, the ground flora is lush, you know, so it's not just been, it's not. It's not grass, is it? Yeah. It, it's heather and bilberry. Yeah. I'm looking, is this cowberry down here as well? Yeah. With a, with yeah. a nice wee uh, sort of pinky white flower on it. Um, there's mosses. It's. It would be it would be awkward to walk through because it's really quite it's tussocky. Tussocky, it's, yeah, it's yeah. difficult. It's, it's difficult walking. Uh, yeah, through that kind of leggy heather. It's most days. Uh, so I've done a lot of uh, surveying in in woodlands over the yeah. years, and most days I'll take a tumble. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm not walking on the path. You know, yeah. I'm walking through the woods, and and you can't see the ground for the for, for the heather and the bilberry or blaeberry as we would call it. Yeah. 
um, so you don't know exactly where the solid bit of ground yeah. is and yeah. so I, I'm used to that I'm used to walking in it and I yeah it doesn't put me off in the no. slightest no. but yeah most You'll be on fairly your, commonly on, on I, bum at some point yeah, yeah. I'll take a tumble yeah. like. <laughs> so when you're when you're here I mean I, I this this yeah, my knowledge of woodlands this feels this feels right yeah you know it's it's got actually quite a lot of open space in it um it's got multiple layers multiple species the old stuff is all covered in lichens and mosses um it's got deadwood in it the young trees are coming up they're straight and and even stem but you get the feeling they will age at some point yeah. as well um but what are you looking for when you're in a woodland like this? How, how are you thinking this through? So I'd be looking at, it's the patterns, I suppose, in yeah. part. Um, so there's no two parts of this wood are exactly the same. It's very definitely not uniform. Mm -hmm. So some bits are th thickets of regeneration. Uh, other bits are much more open, as you've just described. Uh, and so that kind of mosaic of different types of physical space mean that kind of almost by default, if you use that as a proxy for, chances are that we ha you have ecological niches that have a wide range of different mm -hmm. species can make use of. Because some things will like being in the thicket, some things will like being in the open space, mm -hmm. some things will associate well with the ancient trees, particularly because of the decaying wood that's part of that. Um, so by having a, a varied physical space, chances are you've got quite a bit, you know, it's biologically diverse as well. Okay. Um, and so. in terms of the, yeah, this layers of, layers of complexity. Yeah. The one thing we don't have here is a big predator. Yeah. But we've got lots of other things. I and mean, there's loads of birds in the background, aren't yeah. there? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, including a few sort of endemic things, so Scottish crossbill crested tits. We've got capercaillie in this part of the country okay. as well. So, yeah, there's some, some specific pinewood yeah. things, but yeah, lots of other generalists as well so so you said this area has some of the best of i would say so partly in terms of conditions so when i if i was if i was just formally assessing woodland i would look for look at its health and then also look at its resilience so its capacity to cope with change okay. and scales part of that capacity to cope with change and mm. um, so are there pests and diseases are there uh, invasives. Um, so what do you mean by invasive? So things like rhododendron, so, so non-native species that are have become very well adapted to yeah. our climate and can take over to the exclusion of other things. So things we brought in from somewhere. Yes. Yeah. A bit like the Louisitka spruce which we're looking yes. at down here, which I'm yeah. desperate to join a stamp on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And Louisitka spruce wouldn't <coughs> isn't formally classified as a as an invasive non-native, but it behaves like an invasive yeah. non-native, and I think the reason it's not classified as such is because it's so important from the forestry it's a industry. Yeah, but it, in terms of the way it behaves, it behaves like an invasive non-native. Yeah, and it can come in and dominate to the exclusion of the of other parts of. So even though we have that as a as a key part of our our economic value in woodlands, it's still something that we should be watchful for Absolutely. outside of those areas. Yeah, uh, deeply problematic. I think. Yeah. 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 So this is where we start to get into the politics of, of woodlands and things like that, isn't it? Because is, is is, is, this doesn't seem to have any value to me, economically. I guess, well, um, Cairn Gardens is a very busy place with, with tourists. So the economic value of this is not in the timber? No, it's not in the timber. But there is definitely an increase in things like nature tourism, nature-related yeah. tourism. 
so it will have some kind of economic value, but no, it's not in the timber here. Mm. No, no, not at all. So valuing but, woodlands is an interesting concept, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. It's the value we put on woodlands yeah, like this. Yeah. So I think there's that they have an intrinsic value. That's for me is the thing, and I find the idea of monetizing nature a concern. And I don't. Th I think as soon as we start to try and monetize it and therefore defend its value in an economic sense from within a capitalist system that doesn't make any sense to me because lots of things the most important things in life aren't things to do with economics hmm. so we're we're losing the argument i think if we start to assess nature on the basis of what its financial value is. Because actually we might value this at a million pounds a hectare uh, and a road scheme might be two million pounds a hectare, yeah. so to put a road through here is more valuable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we should not be putting roads <laughs> through here. <you> know? <laughs> no, no, Absolutely, no. you know. Let's say, yeah. This side of the Cairngorms is really hopeful. <clears throat> there are a number of very different private landowners and state organisations that have combined in a project known as Cairngorms Connect mm -hmm. uh, and it covers 600 square kilometres in total, uh, not all of its woodland of course, um, includes high mountain tops mm -hmm. and stuff like that, but the, the thinking behind it is to manage that space uh, to allow natural processes mm -hmm. to, to develop. So natural, I mean, one of the things which looks natural to me is actually the way now the Scots pine in particular, but also birch, is moving up the hillside. Yeah, absolutely. Is that one of your natural processes? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And the, the, so there's, particularly in the uplands, a lot of our woodlands are dynamic. So they, if you were to take a time-lapse photograph of them over several hundred years, you'd see them move across mm. the landscape. Particularly pine and birch woods, they're both pioneering species, so they don't tend to regenerate under their own canopy. Here they can because the canopy's patchy and it's open mm. so they can regenerate in the open spaces of that. Um, but if it was a dense sort of woodland then they wouldn't regenerate under that so they have to regenerate into the adjacent open space. Right. And often that's problematic because you've got intensive land use of either, yeah. you know, it's either agricultural or it's commercial forestry or it's a grouse moor or yeah. something like that. So the, the woods are restricted from moving as they would do naturally and right. here they do move and part of that movement is moving up the hill. And the biggest change. I used to walk in, <coughs> in here and in other parts of the sort of Cali Caledonian pine woods um, and go wild camping and stuff mm. when I was a lot younger and a lot younger. <laughs> a lot younger <laughs> I, and I, I used to love walking in them and some of them there was a place on the other side of the Cairngorms at Glencoich and uh, and there the trees are cathedral like yeah. I, I like the gnarly kind of odd shaped trees but these ones are just monsters growing straight up yeah. and I always used to really be kind of wowed by it and you know, I do remember at one point thinking well, what's going to happen when when these trees mm. finally mm. pass on mm. you know they can't live for a long time but at some point they're going to go because there was nothing else you know there had been no regeneration for 150 years yeah. um, but now as a result of places like this where they've reduced their numbers and and things are regenerating so previously the bit that we're in just now is at a close to a place called Dry Vaughan um, and it was on the one edge of the woodland from Glenmore mm -hmm. and then just you know, 
the next bit of land adjacent to us is Abernethy National Nature Reserve, and it was a separate woodland. Yeah. Now these two woodlands are getting joined up, joined yeah. up because things are regenerating and moving out, so the woodland's expanding and it's connecting up. It's, so in terms of <coughs> when you're thinking about the resilience of the wood, then you know, that's quite a meaningful, meaningful and thing. And it, it does feel, having we walked through the landscape early this year, actually, you know, we, we, we had a fantastic view. Dense woodland, and then you slowly move out into the open space, which has got weak pines everywhere, and, yeah. and you feel like there is a connection happening. Yeah, yeah. No, so, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing to it, see, it's, and it's encouraging. You know, it gives some yeah. hope, and uh, yeah. I think we desperately need that. You know, if yeah. if, you, if you're aware of some of the issues around sort of climate breakdown or biodiversity loss, which are very real and very pressing, then to have some projects that you can see moving things in a different direction, um, yeah, it gives us some sense of hope, I think. So. Um, <clears throat> I want to come back to landowners in a minute, but the, the process then, is that, is, that a, is that wind-blown seed that's taken up there, or is it is there some other vector? No, it would be wind-blowing wind for, for the, the pine and birch. Um, mm -hmm. Things like rowan, it would be birds, so songbirds, mm -hmm. thrushes, waxwings, and... Uh, field fairs, and these are so the pioneer species would be the birch and the yeah, pine. Yeah. Does the round follow that? The round sometimes they 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 appear anywhere, everywhere, right, okay. and they're very sturdy. You know, they're, yeah. they're a resilient tree. So you sometimes find them just sitting on their own in the middle of a, right. you know, and they'll grow out of rocks and, yeah. and all sorts. Um, Where the birds are likely to uh, yeah, to sit down, and yeah, have a, yes, to have a rest and have a rest. Let nature <laughs> take its course. Yeah. You know? So. Um, yeah. Okay, and then um, and what then? So the other things follow that. Does yes, oaks is oak so, part of this woodland or not? Not not in the Cairngorms and commonly not in pine woods, but not not never. Right. Um, so there's a one of the woods I particularly like over west. There's a my garlic's not good, but a putican, I think is how you pronounce it. Mm -hmm. It's a very long word, um, <laughs> but. It's one of the few woods that I'm aware of that has both pine and oak and okay. other things, and they and it's a great woodland as well in terms of the, the structural diversity that it's got. But quite often they're they're in separate types of spaces, and sometimes you'll find in in a particular glen that the the oaks will be on the south facing side and the pines will be on the okay. north facing side right. at the same sort of altitude. So right. pines can cope with a cooler climate. Right. Uh, so so in a warming climate that we're currently going through, then pines will move up the hill, yeah. um, or they will want to move up the hill. Mm. So we have to, when we're thinking about the long-term resilience of these woodlands, it's that possible. What's, what, are there restrictions for that, or, or can that happen naturally? Because um, that's what they're So that's where, that's where perhaps our work is about facilitating that change. Yeah. So maybe it's culling deer, so we've got the deer at the right numbers to allow yeah. it to happen. Or talking to landowners and bringing them into the fold. Yeah. Do you, has there been a shift in terms of land land ownership? Do you think is is there is there more willingness to think about this kind yeah, of stuff I now? Yeah, I think I think so. And I think there's also there are exa examples now of things improving. So yeah. previously there would have been debate about. I don't know. It's not as simple as just reducing deer deer numbers or reducing the impact of deer. Certainly in central Cairngorms, it is as simple as that. Right. And some other parts of the country it might not be in and over west the, you know, where the climate's wetter and stuff mm. the, the 
the, the type of vegetation is different and the, the things don't regenerate quite as easily. But here, that's pretty much all that we would have to do. And it does make me think now that you know, the science is pretty well understood about uh, what's happening within our woodlands and the major issues around it. Uh, so if we were to tackle the deer issue, tackle issues to do with invasive, in particular rhododendron on the west coast, and we were to do something about the extent of grouse more, mm -hmm. um, with those three things we could probably sit with our feet up for right. the rest of our days really. Right. There would be some nuanced management that would need done in yeah. some other places, but if you tackled those three things, so it's just lack of political will now. Um, Science is there. And on the politics then, you say lack of political will, is yeah. that...? So that's that's partly politicians, but it's, it's partly landowners, yeah. it's a, yeah, all of us really, you know, all of us. And put our, putting our money where our mouth is, you know, people yeah. speak about um, there being a biodiversity crisis or, you know, climate emergency. Um, it doesn't feel to me like we behave as if it's an emergency. No, we still fly off on holiday somewhere else. Yeah, and, and then and if you know when, so when the financial crash happened in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, whenever it was around that kind of time, it was treated like an emergency. Mm. You know? mm. the government and big business failed. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and when when COVID came, yeah. it was treated like an emergency. emergency. Yeah, right? but we use the words. Of climate emergency, about biodiversity, that. Bit, yeah. yeah, but we don't behave like that. We're, no. we're not investing. It's not, to my mind, every part of our decision-making process has to be at the top of that decision-making tree. Has to be, does the proposed change in direction does that improve things for natural world, or does it not improve things? Until that becomes the major driving force behind our decision-making process, rather than. Does it increase gross domestic product? Mm. We're on a losing market, mm. I think. So this is the cudgel that we have to take up when we yeah, and talk I think, to our politicians. Or yeah, and I think we have to be more forceful in, in our discussions and yeah. stronger at that. Not be afraid of my natural character, I'm very uncomfortable in conflict. Right. Really yeah. very uncomfortable in, in conflictual situations. But it feels very important to me that we speak our piece, mm. even if that's not well received. Mm. And so, if we, and if we get a bit of flack, then so be it. Because if you see something and you don't act, mm. then you're culpable. You're culpable. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I think it's important that we we speak, you know. And yeah. I, these places are really special. They're they're very distinctly threatened by all manner of things, and, and most of that is related to to us as human mm. beings. Mm. So, yeah. which is quite a sombre thought, isn't it? You, <coughs> something that which which without us would be perfectly okay. Yeah. <laughs> With us yeah. is threatened, yeah. and yet we get so much from being here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and, and people always have. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things I like about being in Woodland and that emotional response I have to it and how it makes me feel better is that I imagine that the people that came before us, our ancestors, felt something akin to what yeah. I feel when I'm in these yeah. places. And part of why I want to work in this kind of field is to ensure that the people coming after us also have that opportunity mm. to walk in these places and to feel the same kind of things as we feel. And a lot of our knowledge um, 
comes through being in these about woodlands comes through just physically being in the woodland mm. and paying attention and when we had more woodland people would have been more connected to that and we would have understood more mm. stuff so culturally we've lost a lot of knowledge mm. um, and it you know it's a real shame and part of my interest in woodlands is around how humans have have felt and been mm. so you mentioned at the beginning of our chat about doing some storytelling and, and stuff so part of that's come from as I've appreciated woodlands I've read different things and from as many different perspectives mm. as possible and that includes the various you know, utilitarian uses we've put to, to trees but also the the kind of associations we've made with them, so the folklore or the, the spirit that you give, mm. that we as humans have given to, to particular species of trees. So, but, so historically, we didn't think just of trees, we thought of particular types of trees, and they all had different characteristics. They all grew in different types of physical space, they all had, and they gave a different feel. Mm. So, culturally, in Scotland, we think of birch, for example, that I'm looking out at just now, um, as being cleansing and purifying. Okay. But that's not just in Scotland, that's also the cultural association in Scandinavia and the cultural association in, in, in Russia. Um, so all across the, 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 the north areas where birch exists, different people at the same at, came to the same association. That's mm. before folk moved about mm. as much. Mm. So there's, it's, I find that intriguing and it does suggest that there maybe is something about these trees if different people at different places have come to that same association. So... That, that's about birch, but you know, Rowan's probably the most famous tree from uh, in, in Scotland in terms of folklore. It's it's the tree that would um, keep folk with bad intent away, you know, right, evil okay. spirits yeah, and stuff. So you yeah. quite often find Rowan's at the front door of country cottages and stuff okay. up in the yeah. Highlands. Yeah. Um, but that's that's not just here; that's in other places too. Um, and we've lost that a bit because we're disconnected from the natural mm. world. And partly why we're disconnected from the natural world is we have to now seek out. You know, if you want to spend time in it and you want to spend the time in places where natural processes are driving the, the development of that space, isn't, we're not surrounded by it in the way that we have been in the past or that some other parts of mm. the world still are. So there's parts of mm. Eastern Europe where they have, you know, as I mentioned earlier about us having less than 1% mm. of our land is ancient semi-natural woodland. I was in Slovenia a few years ago and um, I think 65% of their land is, is wooded, only 2% of it's planted, so it's all ancient semi-natural yeah. woodland that's regenerated. Um, and the people there... Are connected. Are connected. Yeah. Yeah. And the land ownership's different, so in Scotland, less than 500 people own most of the country um, because we have this kind of post-feudal thing with large estates um, but so and many of these estates will be thousands and thousands of hectares um, so many square kilometres mm. um, in Slovenia the average farm <coughs> size was seven hectares seven hectares right. and some I can't remember exactly how many people but the vast majority of the rural population owned a little bit of land I think it was somewhere between 60 and 70 percent mm. but most people owned a little bit whereas here very few people own a lot Mm. And that that makes a big difference, and and I think and, you know there's there is appetite for for land reform in Scotland. I think um, part of that comes from the fact that we've always had um, we now have legally a right to roam, 
but there's always been a kind of common law thing mm. in Scotland mm. that you can you can go wherever you want mm. to go, it's not by vehicle but by foot, and as long as you're not leaving anything or taking anything, yeah. you know, so, but you can access land. And so folk have a sense of that, but very few folk actually own any land. Mm. And so, and I think without, I think, find it hard to imagine that we'll get any sort of meaningful environmental change without some social change as well. Mm. If we don't get social justice, but, I don't see But that's, that's not to say that some big things have happened. And no, actually, in a sense, the, the flip of that no. is if you are active within an estate, then you can get big change quite quickly, can't you? So we're not far from Glen Feshy. Absolutely, absolutely. Which so, is a fantastic yeah, place to go. So, so now the largest landowner in, in Scotland um, owns Glen Feshy. And Glen Feshy is the nearest thing in Scotland to a wild space, mm. I would say. And it's partly to the, the, the shape and form and dynamism of the woodland, but it's also the river system there. The so, river's amazing. So many of our rivers are, have been fairly canalised, you know, and so there's one type of physical space, whereas there, the, it's braided river system, and like of all the places in Scotland, if if I was to sit and be dreamy for a minute, that's the one place I could imagine bear fishing yeah. for salmon, you know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. absolutely, yeah. Uh, just being, yeah, completely makes sense, yeah. you know. And, you I, could... and that, has, that has happened because uh, a wealthy landowner with a lot of land has made a profound difference. So undoubtedly, and we're beholden at the moment to, because of the way that the land, our land ownership patterns are, our best chance of making a difference is when, if some of these people mm. make make that kind of effort, and increasingly that's happening. And you're actually working with one estate, aren't you? Yeah, so... Uh, Which didn't have the best of reputations in the past. No, no, so it's uh, the only estate where there was a, someone had, was got a custodial sentence for raptor persecution. Right. Uh, it's on a on a grouse moor, um, where, you know, as part of the management for grouse, anything that was considered a predator or anything that was going to put the grouse at risk was was deemed problematic. Uh, and now that's under different ownership, and the owners there are looking to do rewilding. I think is how they would see it. Set. Um, Certainly habitat restoration it feels mm. appropriate to me as a way of describing it, or a space for nature. Mm. Like their whole ra mm. ra rationale for owning the estate is to try and create a, a healthy space for nature. Mm. And they, they're, they're lovely folk, they're intense, great, mm. um, and there's a lot of potential. It's And it's exciting because, unlike, so at Glenfeshie, Reducing deer numbers was all that had to happen because they had a remnant pine wood, a remnant yeah. woodland from which yeah. things could spill out. Yeah. But at the estate that I'm speaking about, yeah. there's very little native trees on it at all. Right. It's either very intensively managed agriculture, a fairly uninspiring commercial timber, mm. a, or a previous grouse moor. Um, so. So, so for you then, uh, you're trying to advise me. I mean, I mean, you're, you're talking about trying to set in set in play something which. It's not, it's not a one-year event, is it? No. You're trying to set in place something which is going to change that, potentially for a millennium. Yes, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's many hundreds of years. Yeah. And so there have been a couple of easy wins, you know, quick things that we could do. Um, but the most important parts of the work 
to my mind, it's, it's more important that we get it right than we do it quickly. So if it takes us two or three years to think that through and to get lots of background surveys done, so we've engaged with various people that have expertise in different parts of ecology and they've come and assessed what the land's like now and so where are there important open land habitats. So, so, so we will have to be more interventionist there in mm -hmm. terms of we'll have to provide a seed source. So we'll either have to do some planting of trees, mm -hmm. of native trees and site native trees, so some trees that suit the conditions, maybe do some direct seeding. Uh, but so we'll direct, have direct to, seeding, what do you mean by that? So scattering seed. So, <laughs> OK, yeah. yeah. So effectively yeah. Um, doing what... Had there been a seed source, yeah. what would have happened? Right, okay. so, and there's there's not an awful lot of research being done on it, but there have there are some papers that would describe the types of situations where that might be successful yeah, okay. and the amount of seed that you would have to be involved in. And then the ways in which you might distribute that seed. So you might hands scatter it, you might use some of that. I've done a lot of that with wildflowers. Right, it's yeah. a huge and it's fantastic. When you when you see this stuff I mean, it's leap of faith to bag a seed and you go and you spread it and you think, oh, <laughs> And some seed is really tiny, like poppy yeah. seeds are tiny. Yeah. This is never going to work. Yeah. And six months later, stuff stops popping up. It's brilliant, isn't it? So the the, the, the key thing in, in terms of getting the trees established is making sure that the seed can reach the mineral soil. Okay. Right? Yeah. So like in a situation where we are just yeah. now, where they've got leg heather and lots of blaberry or bilberry and you know, the, the soil's you know, a couple of feet below all that, yeah. uh, particularly if it was things like, like birch that's got quite small papery seeds, it's just going to sit on the top and desiccate. Yeah. So you, the, you, it might may be that you need to do a little bit of light scarifying or mm. something like that just to expose some of the soil, the, the soil so yeah. the seed can get contact with that, and then it can it can grow and do its do the thing. So so one start point is is maybe seeding or, or bringing in stock. What what's you're you're obviously going to have to think about your seed trees. Yes. And, and I mean, what about sort of the local, sort yeah, of local so provenance? Local, local provenance like is a yeah. really important part of that. Yeah. Um, Given the best chance of of succeeding on that site. So um, that's so that you, you're finding local. <laughs> this sounds a little bit a little Britain, doesn't it? <laughs> but local trees for local seed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and because they're going to be best suited to that environment, so it's it's. it's Upland, it's relatively harsh conditions in the winter. So if you take seed from from somewhere where that's not the conditions, yeah. chances are that it may not be as well suited to that. So, and I think that the so a lot of the discussions will be around how much to plant, how to plant if we're yeah. planting, how to plant, yeah. um, where where not to plant. So there are some interesting open land habitats. So some areas of deep peat which we wouldn't want yeah. to plant because yeah. of carbon related things. Um, so we may plant some of it as an intact closed canopy woodland, you know, in time to come. Uh, but other things might just be more like a future seed source, so just little pockets of outliers. And sometimes there'll be scattered trees. There'll be plenty of open space so that as those trees grow and get to an age where they can set seed, then they can do their own thing. Uh, so so you're, trying, you're almost trying to design something that is is not designed. Yes, yeah, and, and and as best as we can, try and, from what we understand of how woodlands work, try and mimic what natural, try and mimic what would happen if there were a seed source there, yeah. if we had a remnant woodland. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll fail, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but 
we'll... But having that as our kind of guiding yeah. light is an important thing. Yeah. And it, if that drives everything, then we'll get the best chance of of having some degree of success mm. from that perspective. So people going there won't see rows of trees? No, absolutely not. Well, I'll, I'll be gutted if they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I see a lot of a lot of uh, young woodland that's that's created where they have one tree every two and a half metres or something, and I've never seen any natural woodland that has one, one tree every two and a half no. metres. No. Uh, so what you would want is something that's clumpy and patchy, yeah. not blocky, not, not like a square yeah, thing, yeah. Um, but yeah, so if you see birch would naturally regenerate and it's really thick, and so you almost have to swim through it. Well, you, and, and actually interesting, because if you do get browse pressure on that then, the browse is on the outside of the clump, isn't it? Yes, yeah. And the middle of the clump gets away, but the deer, will, will they don't want to be in that thicket too much, they want to be able to see what's going on, so they'll come and they'll browse the edge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that, that also formation of yeah. birch, we, we do it in, in Cumbria with, with birch and with hawthorn, yeah. We call them hawthorn hedgehogs. Right, yeah. Where we plant yeah. lots and lots of them. The, the outer ones get brails and the inner ones don't. Yeah, yeah it's almost like it's a few sacrificial. Mm. Yeah. But then, yeah, once they're away and they're set and seed, then you know, your chances of things. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think if, you know, when, when establishing new woodland, particularly if it's through planting, it feels to me there are a few quite profound moments. The, the first one's when you put the tree in the ground. Yeah. That feels great. Uh, the next one for me is when the tree's above your head. So it's like, yeah. especially if there's a number of trees, so you're actually in a canopy, because it's just it's a very low, small canopy, but you get the sense of being in woodland and that at that point, some of the other non-tree components of the wood can begin to come in, mm -hmm. you know, the woodland specialists and stuff, like that dappled shade. And the, and the birds you're talking about, the birds and the... Birds and, and also ground flora, right, yeah. you know, that sort yeah. of thing. And then the... the the third part is when those trees set seed. Yeah. And then you go, okay, my job here is done. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then they can do their own thing. Eh? Yeah. So, yes. Well, we, I've, I suppose in recent years, I've sort of started planting lots of aspen. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know how you go through these phases of thinking something's really special and then you move on, you move on. Aspen's kind of come up my agenda a long way. Yeah. And we found again and again and again, three or four years in, and the aspen starts to have thing, little eggs appearing on some of the leaves. Right, yeah. You know, you know yeah, the invertebrates yeah, are, yeah. Are, are laying eggs, and it's just like, you've planted a tree, and after even just three or four years, it's now being used by some other form. Yeah. So you've got the tree plus the invertebrate. Yeah, yeah. And if you've got those, you're gonna have birds coming back in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hugely exciting. Yeah, I mean, and the, the, the thing about woodlands aren't just trees in a field. It's all the non-tree part. I mean, trees are clearly an important part of woodlands. They don't have, you know, yeah. without them, they don't exist. But, but it's all the the non-tree parts that add the wonder, really, and, yeah. and the different colour and shape and form. So going back to the thing about the aesthetics of being in these places, or yeah. the emotional feel of being in it, and the sense of intrigue. It, it's all the non-tree parts of that, that that make up woodland and and give it that feeling. Um, yeah, makes it feel special. And just sat here for an hour and listening to birds around us and the sound of the of the, of the river coursing below us and it's, it's it is well it's extremely mindful even though we're chatting it just brings you into yeah. space doesn't it? Yeah. So just to start to wrap up, it's been a lovely conversation through your your being really your woodland being. Um, 
you're a wooden advisor. That's yeah. what you do. Yeah. Um, let's paint a hopeful picture of the people you're working with and where you're going. What, 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 what do you see as your, your hopeful Alan? Yeah, so I, I think there, there is hope and they, that's partly around people's desire to see more woodland, but it's also about their the desire to see what woodland they have in better condition. And I think that's something that we really should be focusing on more. It's actually the management of our existing mm. woodlands and making sure they get to be as full an expression of what they can be, uh, that they can be. And, you know, like I've, we work with a really wide range of clients and in different situations. So some of them are really large landowners and they make a huge difference over a big swathe of land. But others are, are kind of almost like hobby woodland mm. owners and mm. stuff and they but they they often come with with passion and they they live close to the woodlands or in the woodland um and they can so different types of landowners can make a difference in different different ways so the large estates will make few but large interventions mm. whereas somebody that's got 10 hectares in their house on the edge of it, they can make many and little yeah. interventions. So everybody can make a difference. And that, when lots of people... And it's also engaging more people. So if, if there's lots of small landowners doing something, there's a change happening. Because yeah. they're, they're paying attention, they're seeing things change in front of their yeah. eyes, and so that gets into their heart. And then, you know, there's, if we want meaningful change over time, more and more people have to feel that this is important. And by doing, having activity on the ground is mm. one of the ways that that happens. And one of the, the projects that um, is going on in Scotland at the moment is a thing called Croft Woodlands Project. Mm. Mm. And it's it's amazing, you know, like because it's so many people that are getting involved in that. And each of the crofters own a small piece mm. of ground, so it's not doesn't necessarily make a huge difference over a big swathe of ground, but it makes a meaningful difference to them and to their livelihoods and to their mm. their their lives when they're there because of all the benefits that trees and woods will bring in terms of shelter and such like. Um, oh, we're often talking about connecting habitats, aren't yeah. we? So if you've got a really good habitat in one, in one side of a valley and a really good habitat somewhere else, but the intervening patch is a no-go area for nature. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't work, is it? No, if no. You start to, if you start to defragment, start yeah. to join up with the odd tree here, the odd hedge there, maybe an air, maybe a bit of land which has got less fertiliser going in, yeah. less herbicide, is maybe managed in a different way. You start to allow wildlife to move through that landscape to connect those two areas. Yeah, up. yeah, and that, that's undoubtedly one of the most important things that we can do, I think, because it, any little oasis of, of a healthy habitat is, is worth its weight in gold, but, but even more meaningful when you can connect those places up because quite a lot of things that associate with them need scale, yeah. you know, like... Uh, and also for, for the movement of, of things, uh, you know, like if you've got... You know, that's, and that's for plants as well as for... Mm. You know, a lot of the woodland specialist plants are quite slow-moving, mm. but, you know, if you've got... In, if you can connect up those things, then they can move through that landscape. It, it's funny, you talk about the observation. <coughs> I have a tiny garden home, and we've rewilded it. In fact, Andrew was saying the other day, we should put a little notice on the, on the gate, you know, 
rewilded garden, you know. <laughs> I think we've got 48 species of thing in our garden, and it's yeah. literally about eight square metres. Yeah. It's tiny. Yeah. But what I've noticed is, is plants, lily of the valley, for example, you plant it in one corner of the valley, of the, of the, of the garden, within a few years it's migrated. Yes. And it's yeah. kind of lost in the first patch, but it's migrated somewhere yeah. else. Plants yeah. do move. Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, natural world's dynamic. Yeah. Dyn dynamism and complexity, that's, I think, what we're after. Yeah. Uh, yeah, anything that can improve on, on, on that. You know, so, so, final comment. Are you dynamic and complex? <laughs> I'm complex. <laughs> <laughs> and occasionally, maybe. Occasionally dynamic. Yeah. <laughs> Alan, it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure to chew the club with you under a granny pine in the Cairngorms. We've neither been midged nor rained on. No, that's which is pretty very good. fortunate. <laughs> Thanks very much for your time. It's been brilliant. And you, Thank Pete. You. Cheers. Thank you. The forest that Alan and I were stood in is full of old granny pines, these lovely tall old pine trees. The smell in the air was fantastic, the insects buzzing. And I came away from this, this interview with Alan really quite emotional. I hope you, you got a sense of that by listening. Next time on Triangle Podcast, we interview James Robinson. James is uh, chair of the Nature Friendly Farming Network and organic farmer in Cumbria, an amazing guy. You've been listening to the Tree Amble podcast, written and produced by myself, Pete Leeson. My special thanks go to Pete Ord for his awesome production and mixing skills. And actually, Pete and Pete, both of us, we wrote the music, so thanks very much to Pete for his input there. The recording was on location with mixing and production at the studio at Sunbeams, part of the Annie Mawson Sunbeams Music Trust. Thanks also to all those lovely people who were interviewed, Simon Wakefield for the artwork, and my special thanks go to those who gave me the confidence and support to make this happen. Angela, Anne, Catherine, Tim, Tim, Kevin, Emma, Nick and Paul. <laughs>